Hi folks, Travis McMacken here. I'm in my office in Butler Hall, the seat of the Religion Department at Linwood University's St. Charles campus. And I am excited today because I'm going to be talking with the Reverend Kate Hanch. Uh, Kate is a cooperative Baptist minister, and she's decided to be very cooperative today and come talk with me about Julian of Norwich the uh, important medieval uh, mystical theologian. I first met Kate on Twitter, and when we needed some adjuncts here at Lindenwood, and I noticed she was in the St. Louis area, I got in touch with her, and lo and behold, she's adjuncting with us this semester. And one of the things that most attracted me to her CV was that I saw she did work on Julian. And I've been getting interested in Julian a bit more and more over the last couple of years, and I thought, I need to bring this person to Lindenwood so I can talk with her about Julian of Norwich. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm very excited uh, to have her here, and I'm going to move some things around and put her in my fancy chair, and then we'll get to chat with her. So uh, here comes Kate. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, I said in my introduction a minute ago that you're a cooperative Baptist, and it turns out you're the first cooperative Baptist I've ever met. So can you tell mm. us something about what it means to be a cooperative Baptist? For shame. Well, I'd like to think that we are, um, I've used also used the phrase goodwill Baptist. So um, we uh, cooperative Baptist fellowship is what Susie Painter, who's the executive director, coordinator, um, calls the Denama Network. So we seek to partner with um, groups already doing good things. We started about 25 years ago breaking away from the Southern Baptist Convention. So um, when you see when you see Cooperative Baptist Fellowship folks, some of the older ones may have gone to SBC seminaries um, or may be affiliated with SBC churches. And, and, the, and the like. So what sets Cooperative Baptists off from the Southern Baptists? Um, we, well, women in ministry, obviously, um, and, and I've perhaps more attention to, I don't want to say more, but different ways of approaching, for instance, missions or church life, um, to be succinct as I can. It's, it's a long journey, um, one with some pain, but there's also been some some beautiful things coming out of CBF, especially as it relates to missions. So, tangent, for instance, we are doing the T Together for Hope Project, a rural poverty initiative, where the CBF partners with the 25 poorest counties in the United States um, and, and seeks to not just mission, to, you know, evangelize or whatever, but... Um, a more holistic approach to missions, so seeking to build up communities and partner and walk alongside with communities. Um, so, so that would be an instance of, of a difference between like CBF and SBC Life. That definitely sounds like an exciting initiative. Yes, it is. So I think it has 15 years. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's... 15 years celebration of, C of Together for Hope. Wonderful. Or 10. I don't know. Google it. <laughs> So, now, you're a doctoral student up at Garrett Evangelical, right? And mm -hmm. that's a Methodist school. Yes. Um, so, how did a Baptist like you end up at a Methodist school? I like to think of my life as an ecumenical project. Um, so, I grew up Baptist, but also had a lot of family who were Catholic, um, and, and was trained in Baptist institutions. But when it came time to choose a doctoral program, 
uh, Garrett came highly recommended for um, what I was wanting to do. So it's a Methodist institution, but some of my best friends are Methodists, and I've studied under Reformed folks there, and Wesleyan folks, and Anabaptist folks, and so it's it's been a great experience. And so you picked them because they're good at what you want to do. What is it that you're doing up there? Um, I'm looking, so so I'm, I'm still working on the dissertation, right? So you know how that goes. I'm looking at Humility and the Holy Spirit in three women. Um, Julian of Norwich, Ann Dutton, um, a Baptist Reformed, a Reformed Baptist in the 1700s in England, and 19th century African American um, female preachers uh, before, prior to the Civil War, and there was Lynn. Hmm. So, Jarena Lee, Sojourner Truth, Jarena, um, Zulfa Elon, looking at their autobiographies. And while these three, or these three groups of women seem very disparate, um, they all have this sense of um, the Holy Spirit as the one divinizing them. And they also have the sense of the Holy Spirit divinizing them uh, for the sake of others. And so, um, for me, and what I'm trying to flush out, is humility is not humiliation. Because that's often construed, especially... Um, against women, but humility can actually be a source of power, and that's where you know Sojourner Truth I, I embodies that in her life and witness and teachings. And so, and I'm also part of my goal in doing doctoral education is that we always talk about like the dudes. So you have your you know, and but and women are seen as appendages appendages theologians. So when you read, for example, your I bet your intro to theology book will have a shout out to feminism, but that's about it. But these women are doing theology and they're being creative and they're being complex. Um, Just for the record, my theology class, the three primary texts, one's by a white guy, one's by a Latin American guy, and one's by a woman. Ooh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm working on it. Good, good. So, so but the, they're writing theology... And it just, even though it's not necessarily what you might call systematic, where you have a million treatises, it's still complex, and it's still creative, and faithful to the gospel, faithful to scripture and tradition, and all those other things. Well, you've got both an interesting topic and uh, quite a cast of characters that you're going to be pulling in there. Yes, so it's very exciting. It's in progress, so you know how that goes. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about one of them, right? Julian yes. of Norwich. And what can you tell us in terms of background for Julian's life, the sort of conditions she lived in and what she was up okay. to? Well, Julian was born in the 1300s in medieval England in Norwich. Norwich was on the coast of England, well, close to the coast, and um, a wool producer. So in her childhood... She would have seen the devastation of the plague, which killed about a third to a half of Europe, and Norwich was hit hard in particular. So that's in the background of her mind. Uh, she experiences a sickness that almost kills her. She receives the last rites of the church, and during the sickness, um, she has a series of revelations. She writes them down in a short text, and then 30 years later rewrites it and expands her theological ideas. Also what's interesting with Julian, there are some there are some 
fighting there's there's some fighting going on in her day for instance because of the plague and a lot of people died um the peasants were still expected to work just as hard um with half the people you know of course they're not going to have any of it so they uprise and they revolt so in between the writing of her first of the short text and the second text that's when they revolt and this is in Norwich. And so the bishop kind of puts them down and it's a brutal putting down. And so Julian is, is when she writes her long text, there's an element of pastoral care that you would, you can see it, but it may, it, it's more deeper and you realize it more deeply when you um, understand the context from which she's writing. Uh, I should say she also became an anchoress after this near-death experience. Uh, an anchoress is someone who lives next to the church in a walled-in, um, what you might call cell. So it might be like a 10 by 10 room. It has a window that can see the mass. So she can look upon the mass. She can look upon the sacraments. It also has a window where she can see um, the outside world. And so what Julian would do, she would partake in the Mass and receive the sacraments. And she would also give advice to, to folks stopping at her door. So if you've ever read Marjorie Kemp, who, if, um, if you are a medieval English buff, you would read her. Marjorie Kemp, or I think, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Anyway, she comes to visit Julian, and that's one of the like two external resources we have about Julian. So little is known about Julian, um, but she is an anchoress. She's writing in a tumultuous time where God is seen as the cause of the plague. Um, the church is not trusted. It's seen as corrupt. And so Julian's writings and her attention to pastor, pastoral care, she's writing for the people to whom come to, that come to well, her. Very door. helpful in Julian's life. Um, what was it though about Julian that got you interested in her in the connection with humility that you're working on in your dissertation? How, how does that uh, connect with her work? Well, she, she does mention being humble. I mean, she will say something to the effect of, I'm a poor, humble creature. Yet, I see her humility connected with this notion of wanting. Wanting, O-N-E-I-N-G. So wanting being um, united with God. And it's really her union with God which makes her humble, which seems a little weird. But it's, it's what allows her to write and to minister to her community. So the term wanting is, is interesting in Julian. And if you read a whole her an older version of her text she'll talk about being she'll talk about being one and joined to god and um wanting also of course the term one atonement at one meant which i know sounds cheesy but if you think about it that's really at the heart of julian's theology being one with god and that's how she conceives of salvation and is there a Trinitarian component to this? Of course. Um, the Trinity the Trinity goes throughout her text. She'll use, uh, she'll use different terms um, to describe the Trinity. So, for instance, 
she'll describe the Trinity as the mother. She'll use, she'll intentionally use tri triads, um, much in the way that Augustine does to describe, um, the Trinitarian persons working together, which could be seen sort of, um, as a social trinity, but, but then it's the Holy Spirit that includes us, that allows us to perhaps participate um, in the triune life. So the wanting helps us participate in the triune life. And so what are some of the different um, triads that she uses? So um, she uses familiar. Just the triad. way she writes, really, though. I know, I know it sounds cheesy, but it'll, it will be... Um, so, for instance, the first of how our prayer originates. So that would perhaps connect with the first person of the Trinity. Um, second, um, in manner of how we which should um, perform our prayer. So in that way, she would be relying upon Jesus and the Lord's Prayer. This is out of the 42nd chapter of the long text. And then third, um, how we know the fruit and the end of our prayer, which she would attribute to the Holy Spirit. So that would be an example of a triad she uses, and she uses these intentionally all throughout the text. So uh, she'll talk about also, she'll talk about like the Trinity as our mother, the Trinity as our Lord, and she'll apply mother um, both to Jesus, um, the second person, but also to the Trinity, and then she'll apply mother sometimes to the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole notion of Jesus as mother and God as mother is really a scriptural one from Isaiah, where um, Isaiah describes God as a hen, um, gathering um, her chicks under the, her nest, but then continues with folks like Augustine. Um, so, so the notion of, of God as mother, and particularly Jesus' mother, is a popular medieval theme, not original to Julian, though Julian um, takes it to a tender and pastoral level. Jesus is also described by Julian as a brother and a friend, um, and a lover, which is really fascinating if you think about it. So lover, I mean, late medieval period, Jesus is everybody's lover, let's be honest. But um, but Jesus is a friend. I mean, you have that cheesy song on YouTube that's Jesus is a friend of mine. But if you think about it theologically, it's, it's a beautiful metaphor and it connects with this notion of adoption. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're going to have to Google that now. And that connects with, the, with this notion of wanting. So Irenaeus and then Athanasius say, says God became human so human can become, humans can become God. That really gets at the heart with Jesus' brother. And I think that's something that's missing, at least from my church setting. We talk about Jesus as Savior. Um, we may even talk about Jesus as friend, but what does it mean to be Christ's siblings and participate with Christ and the blessings of the triune God? So Jesus gets described as mother, brother, friend. Um, do you ever get Jesus as sister? No, you don't. Um, and and really, I'm not sure why. I think with the whole brother thing, there's still... Um, you know, you know, Jesus is still a particular person who happens to be male. Now, his maleness is not essential to being divine. But I think Julian focuses on Jesus' mother, um, to go back to that, uh, in that we are nourished by Jesus' blood through his side, 
And, um, like, like we would be nourished by breast milk. I see, yeah, that, uh, that theme is one that goes way back in the tradition, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. I've come across it, um, in connection with Eucharistic theology, they often speak of the elements in terms of, uh, mother's milk and so mm-hmm. on to nourish. So we feed through Jesus' side, which, again, is, is very uncomfortable and gets to the bloody Jesus that's sometimes present in Julian's theology. But it's it's not a bloody Jesus for the sake of being bloody and blood and guts Jesus. It's this compassion. So Jesus identifies so much with us that Jesus suffers with us and suffers for us. So when we sin, um, God is not punishing. But when but when Julian talks about wrath, it's always about the wrath of humanity, hmm. um, and and it's a focus on the wrath of humanity rather than. Um, exclusively on the wrath of God, which is which is one reason why I like Julian so much. So that ties in with what you were saying before about the plague and how God was being depicted as pouring out God's wrath through this terrible disaster, but mm-hmm. Julian is saying, no, yes. God is on the other side of the equation. Yeah, God is, Jesus is suffering with you in the plague, um, but Jesus is compassionate with you. He walks along, alongside you when your brothers and sisters and mothers and lovers die. And I think that's one, this is just my guess, but I think that's one reason why Julian purposefully uses the multiplicity of metaphors to describe Jesus. Because people who would have lost those they cared about could find in Jesus um, all of these all of these metaphors are kinship designations that they missed or they longed for. It also kind of makes sense of the bloody Jesus that shows up because dying of the plague is not exactly a pretty thing. No, it's really awful. And you look at population um, depictions between, you know, different periods of time. I mean, whole monasteries are wiped out. And it's, it's, I mean, I can't imagine living in a place where a third of your family or a half of your family or a third of, you know, a third of St. Louis is gone. That's, that's traumatic. And the plague was no respecter of persons. So, I mean, thinking back into that, I mean, if you likened it to perhaps the Ebola crisis and how people were afraid to touch one another and were told not to touch one another, but yet naturally, you know, as as somebody, you know, if somebody you love is suffering, you are wanting to be with them. Um, and, so, and so it makes sense that Jesus would occupy all of those um, roles that you find yourself without after the plague. It also makes sense of the strong eschatological note there in her work, right? So if if people know anything about Julian, they know that famous line about all being well. Um, But this kind of gives you the background of what she's she's pronouncing that against. Yes, and I've heard it um, kind of described glibly, like, I've had a bad day, all shall be well, you know, it'll get better. But yet, uh, knowing her context, like the church sucks at this time. It's not doing a very good job of reaching out to the people. It's blaming people for the plague. Um, It was the bishop who put down the peasants' revolt um, that happened between her short and long text where the peasants were tired of working so hard. So, so the church and, and people are preaching and, 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 pe- and the common folks are having to give all this money to different people. So it was just a mess. And so when Julian says, 
all shall be well. I mean, it's it's really powerful and almost countercultural, and it's Trinitarian as well as eschatological. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little bit of, um, of what she means by "all shall be well." This is the thirty-first chapter in the long text. Um, so our good Lord Jesus answered to all the questions and doubts I could raise, saying most comfort comfortingly. I may make all things well, and I can make all things well, and I shall make all things well, and I will make all things well, and you will see yourself that every kind of thing will be well. When he says I may, I understand this to apply to the Father, and when he says I can, I understand it to apply to the Son, and when he says I will, I understand it to apply to the Holy Spirit. And when he says, I shall, I understand it for the unity of the blessed Trinity, three persons in one truth. And when he says, you will see it yourself, I understand it for the union of all people who will be saved in the blessed Trinity. So she explains that passage, all shall be well, as a Trinitarian. how that, uh, that eschatological statement is so tied into the Trinitarian life and the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it strikes me in that context that in addition to being a statement of eschatological hope, it's also a statement of eschatological humility. Yes, yes. Um, Julian is not relying upon, upon another person or another, you know. I mean, she's re relying upon the Trinitarian God um, as an eschatological hope. And, and the multiplicity of metaphors within the Trinitarian concept really models this epistemological humility. So we do not make an idol out of uh, one metaphor or one image of God. So yes, she would affirm Christ as Savior as, and Lord, but she doesn't stop there because there can be there can be idolatry in that. So Christ is also our brother, which which connotes a different image of who God is. Uh, Christ is also our friend, and and again a different image of who God is, how God interacts with us. Christ is our lover, a different image, perhaps a humble, um, intimate image of who God is and how how God interacts with us. So it's really. Um, the humility of God, which prompts these multiple metaphors, and the humility of Julian, too, in becoming one with God. So it's a humility on both sides, but it's a humility that's not, um, Julian doesn't lose herself when she is one with God. Rather, she's fully herself, and in doing so, um, she has this sense of power. So humility is rather than connected with humiliation, is connected with power. And it's a power in salvation, becoming one with God, but it's also a power for the sake of others. And that's where Julian's pastoral practices come in. So the, the use of the many different images and metaphors is not only a pastoral move that, that hopes uh, for her hearers to uh, connect with what she's saying, but it's also an epistemological move and kind of it's it's kind of a wrapping of a cataphatic impulse where she yes. uses all of these designations, yes. but it wraps that cataphatic impulse within a ever greater apophaticism, if you will, to prevent to prevent any um, unnecessary and unhelpful objectification. Yes, yes, exactly.
Fascinating. I knew you were the one to talk to about Julian of Norwich. <laughs> well, I th the reason I like her so much is that she is a great teacher. She is trying to explain everything, which is why she wrote the second iteration of her revelations. At the same time, she is... Um, she is holding on to the mystery of God through that multiplicity of metaphors and through these complex theological ideas. So the cataphatic informs the apophatic and vice versa. So the first, her, her text is called The Showings, mm -hmm. and the first text is primarily descriptive mm -hmm. of what she saw, and the second longer text then interprets those, those yes. visions. Yes, and so... Um, they're, they're more theologically, I, I would say, complex or nuanced or intense. I mean, there is still some theology in the first text, but it is, it's kind of, it's the summary, basically. So, I mean, the first text, she still talks about all things shall be made well, um, and she still talks about the Trinity. But um, especially when you get to Revelation 14, that is where she's extending and lengthening the text. And, like, what does this mean? And she, I think she has the people who come to her window in mind when she writes these revelations, when she writes and edits these revelations. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. um, where should we look in terms of secondary sources and things if we want to get to know Julian better? Well, this text, the Paulist Press version, um, with James Walsh and Edmund College, uh, this has a good critical introduction and a good, and has the, the original, the short text and the long text. My one gripe with it is that it translated translates the one, W-O-N-E-D, as knitted or joined. And so if you really want to get that feeling of becoming one with God, you need to look at an older text. And honestly, the 99 cent text on Kindle edition is good. I've used that and um, worked with that alongside this text. Nicholas Watson and I think Jacqueline Jenkins have a, have a critical old text edition, which is great. And then Dennis Turner, Julian of Norwich, theologian, is also a secondary resource that might be helpful. Well, thanks a lot, Kate, for coming and talking about Julian. How can people connect with you if they want to get more theological goodness and hear about Julian? Tweet at me, at Kate Hanch. Um, so, yeah, feel free to message me, and I'd love to chat more about Julian. I think she's a great pastor. I, there's a lot more we could get to that I won't bore you with, so... I highly doubt it would be boring, but can't keep you here all day. So thanks for coming and for chatting. Thank you.